Please join me in praying. Lord, I thank you for the Holy Scriptures. I thank you for all that they do to teach us about who you are and your deep love for us and what it looks like to follow you. Lord, I ask that your spirit would come and help me as I preach, that I might be clear, and that our church would be a people who are very much like you. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So some of you will know the name Thomas Hardy, who is an English uh, author and poet from the late 1800s. Probably his most famous work is called Tess of the D'Urbervilles. And he wrote a number of things and was a pretty well-respected poet. And an interesting uh, fact about him that I came across this week was that long after he'd become popular and was hugely respected, he was still very humble. In a time when any publication, any newspaper, any uh, publishing house would would pay handsomely to get some of his work, um, he would occasionally send poems in, but he always included a self-addressed stamped envelope because he assumed some of them might reject his work, and he wanted them to mail the manuscript back. That was in a time before, you know, photocopiers and, you know, word processors. So painstakingly would have to type out a manuscript and would send it, and he wanted it to come back if they rejected it. Of course, none of them ever did and would reject his work, but it's a picture of humility. And I lead us off with that this morning because I want to talk about that, that attitude of a Christ follower, having a posture and an attitude of humility. And I think about the Apostle Paul writing in uh, Romans chapter 12. He says, By the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Luke chapter 14 is about Jesus teaching us about the humble posture of his followers. And I think what he's doing here is far more than just merely giving advice. That would be the parable of that wedding feast and and where to sit and not sitting in a place of honor. He's not just giving advice, although there is advice like that given in the scriptures. For instance, Proverbs 25 says this, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great ones, for it's better to be told to come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Now, that's Proverbs giving wise advice on living. And if you've been to a wedding, I was at one, Dan and I were at one this weekend, uh, Friday night, uh, you know that there are specific seats for certain people. And usually there's a head table for the wedding party or the bride and groom, and then typically the families of each are on the tables next to them. It would be really embarrassing if you just walked in and decided you're going to sit right up close so you can get a good photo op or something. Because then the wedding planner is going to come in and say, I'm sorry, that's where the mother of the bride sits. You're going to need to take another table. At which point, the only seat left is in the back corner by the restrooms with the loudspeaker, right? That's just, you know, that's just common sense. That's wise advice. Don't do that. But Jesus is going beyond that here. He's trying to teach us something about how the kingdom of God works. It's a little bigger than just wise advice. He's challenging motives. He's getting his... Uh, his scalpel and cutting into the heart to get out the issue of our own need for approval. And he's challenging us with the question, what is the right attitude for those who would follow him? What is our attitude? Now, let me back up and place this in our series. We're doing a sermon series on abundance for others. That was the word I felt like the Lord gave me for our church for 2019, that he has made our church strong and healthy, and it's not for our sake, it's for others. So who are these others and how do we go about serving them? 
Well, starting today and then for three weeks, today, next week, and the following one, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. If you want to turn there, it's page 873. Luke is interesting to me as a gospel writer because he's so organized. He was a physician. He drew up an orderly account of the things of Jesus's ministry after a thorough investigation of them. But then he's also an artist, and he's telling a story in a certain way. So like chapter 15, which has three parables of lost things, chapter 14, right before it, has three parables of banquets. One is set up for when you're the guest, one is set up for when you're the host, and one is set up for God as the host. And we'll look at each of these three over these three sermons. In my Bible, I wrote, which by the way, I encourage if you own your own Bible to write in it a lot, mark it up, own it, get into God's Word. I wrote the words, last, least, and lost over each of the three parables. Because for me, it helped me get a framework around who it was that is being addressed or something about that that gave me context for it. So the last, the least, and the lost. Now, in we didn't read this whole section, but what happened here was Jesus was invited, it says in the first uh, part of the chapter, to the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Not just a Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees. So this might have been one who was in the Sanhedrin, which is the, you know, the governing body of the Jewish uh, leaders, or somebody who had extra authority, a dignitary, a very important person. And he's invited to this, um, this banquet, and it tells us, Luke tells us that the Pharisees were watching him carefully. They were scrutinizing him. They were looking, we learn, they were looking for anything they could do to accuse him of being a lawbreaker. And it happened to be a Sabbath. Seven times in the Gospels, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders say, see, he's a lawbreaker. He doesn't obey Moses and the law, so clearly his power is coming from something else, because God wouldn't bless someone who's a lawbreaker. So Jesus is uh, aware of this, and I think it's a setup. I think it doesn't say it, but I'll give you two reasons why I think it's a setup. One, a ruler of the Pharisees throwing a banquet for this itinerant healer guy is not likely to have somebody who's really sick there, unless it was a family member, but this man was pretty prominent. It's like they brought him in to see if Jesus the healer would heal this guy in this Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. He had what's called dropsy, which is basically his cells were holding water. His body was swelling, which is typically a symptom of some kind of heart disease or heart failure. He was really ill. And I don't think that this Pharisee would have invited someone like that to a party where everyone was jockeying for the most honorable seats at the table. And I also think when Luke says, Jesus answered them, but they don't actually say anything to him, he's answering their motives. He's looking at the situation. He sized it up. He realized, okay, they're going to go into a battle of wits with me here. And he's sizing the situation up. So he answers their hearts. The Lord knows our hearts. And as a side note, you just don't ever go into a battle of wits when someone knows your heart. He's the smartest man to have ever lived. You can't win this. But see, they don't believe that he's the son of God. So they think he's just, you know, some, somebody in Satan's power or something. So answering them, before he heals the man, he says this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they're totally silent. They don't have an answer to that because it would expose their lack of compassion, for one thing. And it's not explicit. The law said not to do work, but they had extra rules that they had built on that of what it means to do work. Is it work to heal somebody? They would say yes, but they're trying to trip Jesus up. He would say no, because it's compassion. So he heals the man and sends him out of the house. And they're just staring at him. 
And then Jesus says, which one of you who has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath will not immediately lift him up? So regardless of what your rules are, in practice, you do the very thing I'm doing right here. I'm having compassion on this person as you would have compassion on a son or even one of your farm animals who would fall into a well. And they're totally silent. And then what I think is so awesome about it is he flips the tables on them. He, he, he then scrutinizes them because he's noticed something about them, that they're worried about whose reputation is bigger, higher. They're at this esteemed Pharisee's house. They want the best seat. They want to be affirmed. And so they're, they're fighting for who gets the best seat. And so he points out to them this situation by teaching a parable. So here, it's called a parable. It's not just a, a proverb or a life lesson on wisdom. It's called a parable because he's trying to teach humility. And I love when Jesus explains his parables to us in case we interpret them incorrectly. He does that for us here. So the parable is real simple. You go to a wedding feast, don't sit in the place of honor because then the host will come and say, move down here. Somebody more important than you is here and you get public shame. Instead, take the low place and then you only can go up. If you start at the bottom, there's nowhere for you to go but up to the higher place. The host will come and say, no, no, don't sit over here. Come sit closer to this spot. And then you get honored in front of everyone. And here's the translation or the interpretation in verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 11 lays it out for us, explains to us how the kingdom of God works. Now, let me back up to human need for a minute. We have a legitimate human need for self-esteem. It's really important to have a good view of yourself, to love yourself, to appreciate who you are. And it's so much built into who we are that even Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a sociologist who, just, who started looking at what do people need, started with the physiological needs, like you need air, you need water, you need food. And then safety, you need shelter, you need protection. And then the next one in his hierarchy is self-esteem. You actually need a sense of acceptance. You need to be valued to feel significant. That's important. That's normal. It's a good thing, by the way. And as a side note, those who espouse Darwinism, the idea that you're just an accident of evolution, that just random chance, it says that you have no significance, you're just an accident. But for those who know that God created us, it says you were made by an intelligent designer for a purpose. You were intentionally made, you're valuable. We need to know that, we need to hear that. Otherwise, if we don't get that affirmation from God, we'll try and get it somewhere else. We'll try to get the seat of honor. We'll try to win in a competition so we get the blue ribbon. We'll try to even sometimes put somebody else down so we feel better about ourselves. Or we'll take something that's only got about this much significance and make it have this much significance. A minor award, and we say, it's a major award. <laughs> Do you recognize that? Do you know the Christmas movie, A Christmas Story? When the father in the story gets something sent from his work to the house, and it comes in a huge wooden crate, and he, he says, look, it says Fragile on it. It must be Italian. And what he pulls out is this gaudy, sultry, lady leg lamp that he just is like, he keeps saying, it's a major award because he's so desperate to be affirmed. His, his own identity, his self-esteem is so low, he makes this terrible thing out to be this major award. But think about how often we all are tempted to do that. 
we so badly need that affirmation that we will try and get it however we can. So the Pharisees in this dinner party were doing that exact same thing. They all wanted to be honored in front of men, in front of mankind. And the gospel teaches us that really the only approval we need is the the approval of God. Humble yourself and let God exalt you. He's in the business of blessing those who are the so-called last or the least, the marginalized, the the lower ones. This is one of the things that's all through the scriptures. He's hidden his wisdom from the wise and understanding, and he's given it to little children. They understand the kingdom of God inherently, and it was to his good pleasure to do this. Now, as I started us off this morning in the call to worship, I suggested that the cross is the key. I'll give you a hint. The cross is the key to every sermon, every one. It's the answer, the cross. But here's what it does. First of all, it painfully humbles us because what the cross says is you can't save yourself and what you deserve is death. You're under the wrath of God and judgment. And that's a frightening thought. And we want to tell ourselves because of our need for affirmation and self-esteem, I want to tell myself that I'm a basically good person. Yeah, I got a couple of bad habits or whatever, but I'm basically good. Of course I'm going to heaven. What the cross says is no, you're under judgment. You deserve to die for your rebellion against God and you're wicked. And nobody wants to hear that of themselves. And you think that's going to kill my self-esteem and it should. But then you hear that God, Jesus, the son of God goes to the cross on your behalf. He dies the death you should have died. He lives the life you should have lived perfectly and does all that for you. So all of a sudden, yes, you're broken, you're wicked, you're sinful. I'm broken, wicked, sinful, but I'm loved infinitely more than I realized. Jesus was willing to shed his blood for you. That makes you of huge value. There's both the humility and the self-esteem that you need. So what's the attitude of someone who would follow Jesus? It's humility. And the cross does that. It does it for us. It's an incredible gift. And it's picked up all through the scriptures. In fact, this little idea here of humbling yourself so that God will later exalt you is Mary speaks of it in her Magnificat, the mother of Jesus, speaks of God bringing down the mighty and lifting up the humble, herself being one of those humble ones who gets edified by God with the role he called her to. It's picked up here in Luke 14, again in Luke 18, with a different story. And, I, and I, it's picked up by James, by Peter. It's all through the scriptures. And I think that's because Jesus made it a common refrain of his teaching. And then, of course, his example, which we have um, the Apostle Paul speaking of in Philippians 2, that Jesus had the right to, to grasp onto that primary seat, that place of honor, and yet he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to be born in Bethlehem as a baby and to grow up as a, you know, a, just a normal person and then lay down his life for us. This is the son of God. That's the way that he won the world. He did it through service. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And his example for us is one that he expects us to follow. He wants us to be like that in the way that we serve others. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, to be ready for a year of having abundance for others is to pay attention to those who are the last, the least, the lost, the outsiders. And when you put yourself in that lower seat, you not only do you have the potential for God then to elevate you later, but you see who's also sitting down there. And it's the ones who are down there that are the most open to the kingdom of God. 
when people have power and authority and prestige, a lot of times it's really hard for them to hear the gospel. They're more resistant to it. I'm not saying we shouldn't try and share the gospel with all people. We should. The ones that are the last are way more open because they're far more in touch with their need of a Savior and their brokenness. And so by putting ourselves in the place of the last, we start identifying with them, and we find the kingdom of God is readily available there in a way that it's not as much available for those who are in places of honor and esteem. So let's figure out how to take this attitude of Jesus and make it our own. Well, how do you do it? How do you get the self-esteem that you need from the Lord? Well, one of the best ways is to start reading all of the promises in here about your identity, about being made a new creation in Christ, about all that he did to win you, to save you, the price he was willing to pay for you. You start reading this and you find that God is affirming you. He's saying, I love you. I did that for you. Yes, you were wicked and my enemy, but I chose to come to you while you were still my enemy out of love for you. And when we're working for the approval of God, we actually don't need the approval of others. It's so powerful to look at the apostles of of Jesus and see the way that they weren't worried about what people thought of them anymore, even people who had a lot of power. They were willing to stand up in front of the rulers of their day, the wealthy, the the gifted, the educated, and say, no, no, we're not going to worship Caesar. We're going to worship Jesus. He is God. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. And they were willing to go to their death for it because they had the approval of God. They had that confidence that comes from the cross. They were walking in that kind of a place. So I want to encourage you to take a look at this and see all the promises in it where it says you are loved, how valuable you are to God, how much he builds up your self-esteem with the cross. And I want you to be self-aware enough to recognize when you are really needing that promotion, when you're really needing that 100% on that test, when you really need to be on, you know, the AB honor roll or whatever, and you're needing it more than is normal. Recognize maybe you're getting your approval from the wrong place. Or when you find yourself resenting somebody else that does well, and there's envy coming in, and you want them to do poorly so that you feel better about yourself. There is always someone who's faster, smarter, prettier, whatever, richer, more educated, fill in the blank. Someone is always coming behind you to take that place if you get to the pinnacle of what you're looking for. The only person who actually is the smartest, the best, the top, is Jesus himself, and he didn't worry about that place. He actually chose to go to the bottom of the heap and, and to win the world in a subversive way by caring for the least and the last and the lost. He didn't have to. He chose to. So let's pick that up. And let me close for you today with something that Peter said in his epistle, which I think is awesome because if you know Peter, he was kind of full of himself. He was very impulsive. He was overconfident. He often stuck his foot in his mouth because he was so confident, and Jesus spent three years slowly putting him in the right place until he flat out denied Jesus on the most urgent night of Jesus' life, the, day, the night he was betrayed. Peter denies him three times after being told, him, told it was going to happen, and he's completely humbled, and then Jesus reinstates him. Having that lesson, he's able to later write this in his, his epistle. This is from 1 Peter 5. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your cross. I thank you for what it does to speak of how important we are and also how it makes us honest about how much we need you. Lord, I pray for our church 
that we would be released to freely give away what we have, to share the faith with others, to celebrate those who do well, to be a kind of people that are full of grace like you are. And I pray that through that you would win many to yourself and that it would glorify you and be about you. Help us, Lord, use this abundance for others this year. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.